Hello again, uh, and welcome to the Digital Sociology Podcast with me, Chris Till. Today I'm talking to Susan Halford, who I'll introduce properly when I switch over to the interview, but as well as being Professor of Sociology at the University of Bristol, she is also the President of the British Sociological Association. And she's done some great uh, empirical and theoretical work herself, but is also a, a big advocate of digital, so, digital sociology, I think, and uh, extremely valuable in that regard. Um, and if you'd like to follow Susan on Twitter, she's on there at Susan J. Halford. And as usual, it'd be great to hear any feedback on the podcast. Uh, and you can find more detail in the archive of the podcasts um, on um, my blog. This is not a sociology.blog. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris H. Till. And you should be able to subscribe to the podcast and find all the rest of the episodes on uh, the Anchor platform as well as anywhere else you get your podcasts uh, such as uh, uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So here's my interview with Susan and thanks again for listening. Hi again. So today I'm talking to um, uh, Professor Susan Halford, who's a professor at sociology at uh, the University of Bristol. So uh, hi, Susan. Hi, good to, good to be here, Chris. Hi, uh, yes, thanks for, thanks for talking to me. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to talk to you. And yeah, um, uh, as with a lot of people that I've been speaking to, that your work's um, uh, some of the work that I've been following for a long time, and I think that has been, uh, has had a really big uh, impact on, on sociology in general, and particularly, obviously, the, the, the topic of this, of this podcast, digital sociology. So it's a really great opportunity to, uh, to speak to you. Um, so uh, we'll, uh, we can talk, uh, uh, generally interested to hear about your work and particularly what you know um uh, what you'll be getting on to in the future if you can give us any kind of sort of a sneak preview but um uh, there's a, a few bits i think that are, are particularly interesting for for this podcast um and that's uh, i mean because i think you've you've done a lot of work um trying to kind of conceptualize i think maybe what kind of digital sociology or, or sociology of the digital or however we want to think about that can do and what it should be looking at including kind of coming up with some really interesting concepts and, uh, and ideas to work with um, but one of the things that i thought we could maybe start out by talking about is um discussions you've had around ideas around the semantic web um, and maybe what sociologists what could be useful to sociologists there and maybe how sociologists could be of use in understanding that uh, i think you know if i've read you uh, rightly but um could you Briefly tell me what uh, what you mean by the semantic web and maybe how that's sort of different to the web in general. Yeah, I can. Maybe just to backtrack a little bit, though, my yeah. take on becoming involved in digital sociology was in a way quite conventional from the beginning because I was interested in how digital innovations were transforming the nature of work and working lives, particularly in healthcare, as new forms of technology were introduced that reconfigured how teams worked, how organisations worked, how the spatial relationships of work were constituted, particularly with remote technologies in healthcare and so on. So, so far, so conventional, really. And then out of that, I became involved in an interdisciplinary collaboration at the University of Southampton, which we call Web Science for reasons that we could discuss because they're quite interesting sociologically. Yeah. However, uh, Web Science is an interdisciplinary collaboration primarily across the social and computational sciences. And for the past 10 years, I've been working on that. And it's through that that I have really come to see the importance of at least some sociologists engaging quite deeply with the technical changes and the substance of the technical changes that are part of 
the digital age or part of where society is is going in some senses so it was in that context that I came across the semantic web which was probably not something I would have come across ordinarily certainly not as an organizational sociologist working on digital innovation in healthcare and at a conference with a lot of computer scientists and they were talking about this thing called the semantic web and they were saying how great it was because computer science was going to be able to rationalize the world's knowledge and turn the web into a single linked database and everything, every bit of my sociological <laughs> sensibility was just kind of, you know, going on red alert about yeah. this issue. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to understand more about what on earth this means. And some of it was hype, of course. If you look back to the claims for the semantic web, they stretch way back to the early 2000s. And some of it really, really isn't hype. So just let me explain what the semantic web is. And the easiest way to do that is to contrast it to the web traditionally or the way we think about how the web was originally conceived and what we think the web does for us at the moment. So the web was originally designed as a way to upload and share documents online and to link between documents using protocols that were built on top of the internet which of course had already existed for many many years before the web was imagined. And the way the traditional if you like web works is that each document has an individual identifier, a URL, as we're used to seeing that. And we move between documents by clicking on hypertext links that take us from one document to another. So the classic way of defining that, describing that, the analogy for describing that is that the web operates like a giant online global library of documents. And the primary category of the web is the document. So we move between documents. When we search using a, a search engine, we use search terms or strings in computational terms. That's important, really. And the search engine goes off and looks in the documents and it comes back with a great big long list and it says all these documents have got this string in it. Okay, so the, the, the search engine doesn't, in a conventional sense, know what the string is. It's just a list of characters. It doesn't know really what's inside the document other than those characters. And it's just giving you a link to the document. Mm. Um, so that's great and that's exciting and it does all sorts of things that we couldn't possibly have imagined before the web was envisaged. Um, but moving beyond that quite quickly, the semantic web, the aim was to transform the web from a library of documents into, as I mentioned earlier, a single linked database. So instead of searching documents for these strings, these lists of characters and coming back the list of documents, the semantic web would be able to enable us, would enable us to search for things or people or entities or concepts and would have the capacity to search across documents and aggregate information, for example, about Christopher Till that were found in any and all documents that were online. So instead of getting a list of hits that have got Christopher Till in them, you would get something back that was an aggregation of all the data in computational terms about you. Yeah. So this is a really radical transformation in the web from documents to data. In order to achieve that, a whole load of computational processes have to be applied to data. And this is why, you know, I think on the one hand you hear about the semantic web, on the one hand it sounds really exciting, and on the other hand it sounds terrifying, yeah. because those computational processes have to describe what are the things that exist in the world. What are the entities that are going to be described as part of the semantic web? What's included and what isn't? 
Also, in order to enable this very rapid machine computational um, reasoning about entities across different data sets, across different documents, uh, the Semantic Web works with ontologies, which are ways in computational terms of describing the relationships between entities. So they're kind of models, if you like, of Christopher Till is an academic, works at this university, academics are these kinds of people, leads is this kind of place. So it links the ent entities in order to allow the computational tools to reason and find the answers that you want. And again, from a sociology of knowledge perspective, if we've got all these engineers defining what entities exist in the world and what their relationships are between them, and and then building computational tools that will mediate between our searches online and the results that we get. Well, you can see you start to get quite freaked out as, as a sociologist yeah. about what that's doing to knowledge and who's doing it and what you will be able to know, what you won't be able to know, who will be able to understand that and who won't. So from a critical perspective as a sociologist, I really wanted to start opening that up and having that conversation, both with sociologists and with computer scientists. And from a research perspective as a sociologist, I still think that it's a really exciting set of possibilities. You know, if we could actually do sociological research that enabled us to interrogate the world's data, if you like, that's a bit rhetorical, but to interrogate lots and lots of different data sets across the web at scale and speed, that could be fantastic for sociology. So, you know, it's this real mixture, and I suppose it's a common theme in my research that I walk the line between critique and practice. Yeah, and I imagine that, that it, walking that line helps you to understand both better. Uh, and uh, I suppose that is, it's a notoriously hard thing to do, or, or just in terms of having time to do both. So I think that that's quite, that, you know, that's sort of impressive in itself. But that's really fascinating, especially because of that um, sort of the definitional work that's going on and that kind of ontological um, work uh, as well in, in, in terms of defining the, the nature of what it is that we're looking at um, um, and um, so you've you've done some work with um, so uh, uh, um, with uh, programmers engineers whatever um, to look at um, these things uh, I think that's right and so to what extent do you find them to be um, approaching those things as kind of engineering questions or as promoting them as kind of sociological or philosophical or just more broadly interpretive questions when they're thinking about those definitional aspects of it? I find that there's a real mixed reaction. So computer science is diverse and has different kinds of people working in it with different kinds of interests. Of those who I've worked with, they have a real engineering mentality, which is about building things that work. And they're fairly agnostic conceptually and methodologically in a way um, and that can be a bad thing and a good thing it's a bad thing because it means that of course that part of the computer science repertoire is is not thinking in those ways about the social world so if they're actually building systems that are describing social entities or the relationships between them that's a bit of a worry but on the other hand i, I haven't met much resistance at all because engaging with sociologists enables them to build stuff that works better in their terms so i find them very very open to that and then um, I can come across the very, very special ones who actually really, really are interested in the sociological questions and in the epistemological challenges. And we've just started working on an ESRC funded project, which is trying to look, well, not trying to, it will look at how semantic web technologies can be used for sociological research. So we're actually going to test drive some of the semantic web technologies to look at 
uh, in particular the relationship between social class aging and health over the life course. And so we've chosen deliberately really difficult social concepts that sociologists themselves can't agree about <laughs> to try and see what, <laughs> which is to see what, what happens then if you try and describe those in semantic web terms. What are the challenges? What are the difficulties? Where do the differences between sociological thinking and computational thinking appear? What are the controversies? What are the difficulties? How do we transform them? So some of that's about the sensibilities and beliefs of the people. And some of it is about how those are embedded in the artifacts or the tools of the semantic web. And we've only just started this project, but it's myself, Catherine Pope, who's obviously a sociologist as well, and then two computer scientists from Southampton. And yeah, so watch this space. Uh, I think there's plenty of computer scientists there who really, really want to work with sociologists and really see the point of it, not just in relation to the semantic web, but in relation to a whole variety of things, including big data, computational methods, social media analytics, artificial intelligence. And my experience is, also in coming to Bristol, that there are fantastic people here in computing and engineering who really want to work with sociologists, which is not to say it's easy, it's not easy, it's really challenging for all of us. <laughs> and it's a big leap of faith and it demands a lot of um, extra work that you wouldn't normally have to do if you were just gonna sit in a, stay and stay in a particular furrow. But from my point of view, A, it's just really exciting and interesting and B, I think it's really worthwhile. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like, sounds like great work. I mean, you, you mentioned about those difficulties. Um, are those difficulties, um, obviously, you've said a lot about um, and, and concentrating much more on, on the positives, and I think that's right. But <laughs> are those are those difficulties it, it just in in terms of that you are more likely as um, ways of getting people to be talking about the same things and actually understanding what each other's sort of referring to in terms of the the the, the issues that that are prominent or 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 the the, the day to day. Um, what it is that we're talking about when we're, you know, when we're talking across those kind of disciplinary uh, lines. I think it's that there's two things. So one, one is simply, of course, we come from very, very different backgrounds and understandings and forms of expertise. Uh, yeah. So some of it simply we just don't know what each other is talking about. Some of it is that and we're talking about very different things. Some of it is that when we try to talk about the same things, we have totally different epistemological, methodological and conceptual frameworks for talking about the same things. We see the world in different ways through the disciplinary lenses. Sometimes even when we think we're talking about the same thing or even using the same language, we're not. So it took us about six months to realise that when we use the word, this is at the beginning of web science, when we use the word ontology, we actually meant very different things by it. Right. Or, or, or importantly, different things by it, at least. And it was only when someone said to me, well, let's just build a Hmm, that's not how I'd think about ontology as a philosophical concept. So um, it's all of that. Then, of course, there is a whole layer of things to do with disciplinary politics, disciplinary hierarchy, money, university politics, and all of that comes into it. Right. Okay. And, and comes into it over and over again. Uh, of course, it does. Yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, and I suppose that we, yeah, like you said, we, 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 um, when we're often talking to people who are just sociologists or even within our kind of quite tiny little uh, areas of sociology, we get used to just kind of making a lot of assumptions, as I suppose uh, everyone does. Um, you, you've done some uh, work in trying to um, uh, develop ways of 
um, dealing with uh, big data, you mentioned about um, the, the, the possibilities of um, working on big data, particularly with um, uh, with those outside of sociology, uh, with computer science people uh, and others. Um, and um, one of the um, uh, papers you've written, which I think is, um, uh, I think was with um, Mike Savage, um, in which you, you developed this concept of symphonic social science. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, which I found really fascinating. It's a great paper, which I think uh, everyone should read, and I'll put a link to it on the um, uh, on the description of the podcast. But um, uh, it's a really interesting uh, concept you developed, and it's particularly in, in relation to a reading of uh, uh, of um, I think of the work of Thomas Piketty, uh, Robert Putnam, and um, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who uh, as I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with, where uh, with at least some or all of those. Um, and you tried to develop the, this this I think this way of thinking about how, if I've understood right, how sociologists can deal with, with big data um, in terms of this, this kind of approach you draw on through them. Could you tell me a bit about what you mean by this notion of symphonic social science? I can. So, yeah, as you say, it's a, a joint paper with Mike, who I've worked with over the years on a number of different projects. And it starts with the observation, this is Mike's observation in the first instance, that three of the biggest social science books, as you say, that the three that you mentioned, really, really of recent years, mm. are fundamentally data books. So unlike what was happening at the turn of the century, where the big social science thinkers were more like the were theorists more, the, yeah. the ones that were attracting public attention in as much as they were, when you look at past the turn of the century, these books really, what they share in common, although they're incredibly different and they make no self, uh, no internal reference to each other, is what they share in common is that they take multiple sources of data from all kinds of places. They're not your kind of very carefully managed social science surveys that we're used to, although they include that, but they take multiple sources of repurposed data and they do fairly simple, actually, statistical analyses of these to show over and over and over again similar kinds of patterns in diverse sources of data. And they make their argument using sociological, well, let's say social science theory and concepts yeah. to link these traces of evidence that appear through different, you know, let's say instruments, for want of a better word at the moment, and these instruments, these different renderings of the points, whether it's about making a point about changing patterns of social inequality over the 21st over the 20th century, uh, or whether it's about changing patterns of social capital, whether it's about inequality and health inequalities, these different sources of data are used to demonstrate similar kinds of patterns, and the data are held together through the social science theory and concepts. So the symphonic idea is really of the orchestration of instruments, these different empirical instruments, by the repetitive, um, th through the theory, which allows the authors, the three authors, to pull together all those different sources with theory into something that's greater than the sum of the parts. So the metaphor then is of a symphony with the instruments and the orchestration or the conducting uh, with the theory and the concepts that are drawn from social science. So there's that piece. Um, and then what struck me in talking with Mike about that, which was a sort of standalone piece, was the similarities between that and new forms of data and how social scientists might think about working with new forms of data in ways that were rather more satisfactory to us than some of the very simplistic um, kind of causal statistics that we had seen in data science about prediction and, and so on. 
And so I started thinking about how to repurpose that idea of the symphonic in those very, very social science books for developing a way forward for sociological big, or even social science, big data analytics. And Piketty and the others don't make any use of new forms of data at all. Yeah. It doesn't appear in their work. But it just struck me that it was very, very similar to some of the ways in which the evangelists are talking about big data analytics, which is exactly about heterogeneous forms of data, some of it um, generated way outside the auspices of social science research, and how we might bring those together in a much more robust and meaningful way for social science. So the second part of the paper talks about these three aspects of data pragmatism, methodological pluralism, and and theoretical interpretation. So drawing back on, on the, the more conventional social science authors by data pragmatism, and maybe this is something else we could talk about. I mean, you know, these sources of data that we're faced with, social media data, browser data, internet of things data, they are not data like we're used to as social scientists. They're really different and challenging. So either we say, we don't like these and we're having nothing to do with them and leave the whole field to the data scientists, or we say, these are interesting data. They don't look like we're used to the data we're used to working with them. How can we think about them? And so the pragmatism, again, sorry to be repetitive, but is about walking the line between really being willing to think constructively about these data without being naive about these data and what they are and what they're not. So trying to think as robustly and methodologically as we can about these data and use them in ways that are useful and meaningful for social science and that allow social science to be part of the big data field rather than just standing on the side throwing things at it. So mm -hmm. I don't think that data science and big data are going to replace the kinds of methods and of data and uh, generation that we have. I think they're very limited in what they can do, but there are some things they can do really well, and there's some things that really enhance social science. So it's about being stuck in that. It's I've just recently read Donna Haraway's book, Staying with the Trouble, and the first few pages, it just screamed web science at me, even though she doesn't write about web science, because it's exactly about how do you stay with those difficult questions, and how do you try and really engage? And so the symphonic social science is, is intended to be a way of a way forward for thinking sociologically about working with new forms of data. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's so fascinating, and I think um, it's really helpful. But um, what is it that you do? What is it do you think about those kinds of data? Like you said, that could just broadly that big data, internet things, data that, that kind of um, um, ambiently that kind of data exhaust is, uh, that we all kind of produce. It's been talked about. What do you think it is about that kind of data, which is a, a little bit kind of maybe scary or um, difficult to deal with for sociologists? Um, is it because it's measuring things we're not used to seeing measured? Um, or is it the, the character in which it's kind of acting as a proxy for other things or, or something else? Well, I think it's all of that. I think it's mm. it's shot, shot through with difficulty. Um, not sure if it's so much the measuring things. I think the, the problem... Part of the problem, and David Beer writes very well about this, is, mm. is about how the data are framed. So what it is they're represented as. So there's this strong discourse from the computational social scientists around, you know, now we have the data, we're going to know everything, and we, we, we won't need sociology and theory and blah anymore because the data will speak for themselves. Well, clearly that's nonsense, and that, that unfortunately is a very powerful discourse that we is beholden upon us to challenge that discourse in any way that we can. 
which is not to say that the data aren't potentially useful, they are. Um, so, the, But the first thing is that kind of discursive, um, the discursive power of big data. The second thing is, and, and as part of that, the way in which they're represented as naturally occurring data, and I have a huge problem with that. These are not naturally occurring data. These are thoroughly constructed data produced by largely private companies that are creating data for their own purposes in the data economy that control how the data are generated, that control how the data are released, if at all the data are released, how they're sampled. So there's that issue about data generation and data curation. There's also the things we don't know about the data. So we don't know very much about the populations. For example, Twitter, of course, is the most popularly used because it's the most available form of data yeah. until now. We don't really know very much at all about the demographics of those people um, who are using Twitter. We do from offline surveys, but we don't really from, from the Twitter data themselves. Uh, we don't know 20% probably of the accounts on Twitter are bots, but we don't necessarily know which ones are bots. <laughs> no. We don't know how the company Twitter selects the data that it gives us in the 1% sample. We don't know when that process of selection changes. Uh, we don't think nearly enough about the functionalities of the platforms that create the data. So what is a like, what is a retweet? etc 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 so there's a lot more work to be done in understanding what those data are and Norchi Mares of course has been writing about this for yes. a long time what the data are and what they're not and what we can reasonably do with them and what we can't and I think we need a much more nuanced take on that and of course the final problem is that social scientists generally don't have the skills to work with these data in terms of data um, even simple data access questions, but also the kind of analytical questions of how, you know, computational methods, because if you're going to engage with data at this scale and data of this sort, you need to have some basic understanding of um, methods that generally social scientists haven't been trained in in the past. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's a really big issue. I mean, uh, for a long time, it's been talked about just the actual, the, the um, deficit in um, quantitative methods in, in, in sociology, particularly in British sociology, I think. Um, and this is kind of like a, a, I think a, a, probably a related a related issue. And um, uh, I mean, do you think uh, I don't want to kind of draw you on kind of more policy kind of uh, issues in terms of this, but do, do you think there's a kind of a, an argument for um, that to become uh, those kinds of methods to become much more sort of mainstreamed in, in kind of sociological um, sociological training, whether that's undergraduate, postgraduate, or or or, or whatever else. Uh, th those kind of uh, these kind of uh, at least some understanding of these kind of big data computer science type methods in the way that we we have to kind of cover qualitative quantitative uh, in those broad terms. I definitely think there's a place for it. What I would resist wholeheartedly is any idea that we simply turn social scientists into computer programmers, mm -hmm. into traders. Um, I think there is there is a strand which says that all that needs to happen now is that social scientists will learn how to code and will be done. Well, I couldn't disagree with that more. So I think these skills need to be situated that within the broader context of the disciplines over my dead body will they replace theory and critical evaluation and these yeah. kinds of things so they can be part of that but they need to be contextualized mm. i mean probably i would say what's even more essential is for computer scientists to learn more about social theory and mm. social search methods <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it has to cut both ways yeah definitely and i think it's going back to one of the first the first um things you brought up because um what that really kind of made me think about was in uh, well, throughout what we've been talking is that um, there seems to be a bit more of an awareness, actually, of the um, 
of the, the consequences of the, the, the who and the why is kind of collecting data uh, and uh, who is defining what that data is um, and the kind of the, the, the consequences of this uh, in sort of, uh, very, very recent times, uh, whether that's in terms of the kind of the um, the uh, the uh, racism or the sexism that can be built into kind of algorithms um, mm. or kind of search results, um, but and and also in terms of the the um, uh, the intentions and the, and the potential consequences of um, uh, generating data on certain uh, on certain people or analysing that and who's using that, whether that's you know the kind of the recent kind of Facebook pro uh, problems Facebook's had and, uh, and and Twitter's had with kind of defining uh, who's a bot and who's and, and who's not and, and trying to deal with that. But do do you think that there is um, a, a move towards taking more consideration of those kinds of um, broadly sociological and kind of uh, uh, ethical and definitional questions amongst that kind of uh, 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 the kind of either the computer science community or more broadly the kind of the um, the platforms, the companies, the corporations who are generating this data themselves. Uh, it, is there more concern for that? Yeah, I think absolutely there is definitely in computer science. And I think part of the reason for that, um, I mean, I've talked about this at length with a, with a colleague of mine, Les Carr, who's professor of computer science at Southampton. And Social scientists are very used to feeling that computer science is invading our territory, or at least the social scientists I work with are. It feels like, you know, computational social science, data science, somehow, you know, it feels like these are all moving into the social space and trying to take over the social space. Les looked at it the other way around and he said, from our point of view as computer scientists, the social has invaded the machine. And he will say, in, in the old days, we just had the machines to work with and nice, neat databases and schema, and we just built stuff for all organizations and it worked and we didn't really have to think about the social very much you know from my point of view as a sociologist I think they should have thought about the social more but yes. I can see what he means they were safe in in their bubble and he said and now we've got the web which has completely gone out of control you know it's it's not doing what it's supposed to do and it's all over the place and people are messing it all up <laughs> and that's before you've even got on to artificial intelligence and so from, from the point of view of those very thoughtful computer scientists and, and the ones that I work with, certainly, they're suddenly feeling like the foundations of their discipline are shaking and they desperately need to get a handle on that. And the most the, the most memorable quote that Les said to me in this conversation was, computer science has never had its Heisenberg moment, but it's having it now. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm sure they don't all think they, I'm sure, I'm sure not all computer scientists think like that, um, but certainly there are some. And I, I think you can see that at the moment in a very narrow iteration where increasingly big computer science investments are inviting social scientists and humanities people yeah. in to deal with ethical questions, the ethical, legal and social implications. And I think as those are constituted often, that's very, very narrow. It's a very narrow kind of absolutist um, sort of sovereign philosophical account of ethics was, you know, can we say this is good or bad? Can we, or a bureaucratic version, which is, um, can people give consent or not? But I think once you've got sociologists playing in that's not playing, once you've got sociologists engaged in that space, they're not going to sit in those neat philosophical or bureaucratic boxes. They're going to start asking much broader questions about the relationship between technology and society. So I think exciting times are ahead, really. I think it's inevitable we're going to see more of this cross-disciplinary collaboration and that the demand for it will come from both sides.
Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's great, and I think it's 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 you and and and, and the people who you've been working with that have been really pushing on this. So I'm really I'm really uh, excited to see uh, where your where your work goes after that. But I think um, we are running out of time, so yeah. um, probably best to say say goodbye um, for now. But it's been great to talk to you, and um, I hope we can uh, catch up again uh, soon. And I, I'll look forward to um, uh, seeing uh, seeing what you're doing next, and I'll put some links up to the the articles. Uh, uh, that we've been discussing as well. But um, uh, thanks very much for talking to me, Susan. Thank you for asking. It's been a real pleasure, Chris. No problem. Thank you. Bye.